The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 162 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I became an activist for family caregiving after retiring from medical practice. Our topic today is compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. Here are some relevant things I've learned from family caregivers from my show, Family Caregivers Unite. Family caregivers are the members of families who provide their caregiving to partners, parents, children, brothers, sisters, cousins, friends, and neighbors. Family caregivers' caregiving is especially important for family members with mental illnesses, developmental disorders, and serious functional challenges like, for example, spinal injury, paralysis, and those kinds of things, or for family members who are at the end of their lives. Family caregivers' caregiving includes their being the eyes, the ears, and the voices of their family members. It includes advocating and navigating for them. Family caregivers' caregiving too often costs them, the family caregivers, their own physical, psychological, and financial health. Family caregivers' caregiving often involves their needing help that lies outside the scope of the healthcare and social systems, such as services specialized for family caregivers' needs, which is why the topic of today, compassion, fatigue, and chronic sorrow, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Jan Spillman. Jan has the Master's of Education degree. She's registered clinical counselor, compassion fatigue specialist, and mental health educator. She's passionate about helping people who help people to live well with the stresses of their personal and professional caregiving. She specializes in designing and delivering wellness-oriented workshops on compassion fatigue, chronic sorrow, double-duty caregiving, personal and professional wellness to people and to groups of people who help people across the country. Her professional career includes 10 years as an acute and critical care nurse and nurse manager and 19 years as a trauma therapist in private practice. For seven years, she was also family caregiver 
for her husband until he died from heart failure in 2004. And since 2004, she's focused on the work she loves best, teaching people who help people practical, realistic ways of healing their trauma and loss and for improving the quality of their lives. So welcome to the show, Jan. Thanks so much, Gordon. Now, Jan, first question. Please tell us more about your career and your own experience with family caregiving. Well, my personal career with family caregiving actually began very early in my life, before I was five years old. I grew up in a family with grieving parents and a youngest sibling who was born prematurely with what was called then blue baby syndrome, which meant that she had a hole between the ventricles in her heart. And as a result, whenever she cried, she would turn blue. We used to have to leave her to lie in the positions where she was comfortable, and that led to secondary deformities in her lower legs and her feet. And through helping care for her in that situation, I learned a few things that I think went on to predispose me to both provide excellent care for people in my later helping professions, but also to put myself at risk as I provided that care. I learned to be deeply empathic with other people's pain, to identify with that pain, and to believe that it was my responsibility to do everything possible to relieve it. And I also learned to remain essentially overly loyal to meeting other people's needs, regardless of the impact on my own life. And I carried these three characteristics with me through 10 years of coronary care nursing and nursing management, 19 years of working with people with various kinds of particularly early childhood trauma and grief responses. And then the full seven years that I was the primary caregiver for my previously healthy and athletic husband, Derek, as he uh, lived with and then finally died from viral heart failure. And I think ultimately these three characteristics were the things that led to my own two major collisions with compassion fatigue. Now, I want to follow up by asking you, what were the factors that led you to become a compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow specialist. What were those factors, Jan? Well, I think two things, really. Uh, The first was my personal experience of compassion fatigue recovery, and the second was the specialized training that I had in healthcare and trauma and loss resolution and in compassion fatigue. I think unknowingly I had spent my entire professional career building the necessary foundations to do this work. Of the two, I suppose, uh, it's my personal experience that is the most important in building credibility with the helpers I work with. I've had a couple of major collisions with compassion fatigue. Some of us, I think, need to learn lessons twice before we learn them at all, and I was one of those people. Uh, The first... Compassion fatigue episode ended my career in nursing, and the second ended my career in psychotherapy. And both came about when I was engaged in what we called 
double-duty caregiving, which means caring for traumatized people both at work and at home. As I recovered from the second bout of compassion fatigue after my husband's death, I recognized that probably all helpers working with the suffering and traumatized are at risk for compassion fatigue. There's a quote from Dr. Rachel Remen, who is an American cancer specialist, that says, the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to walk through water without getting wet. And that's just the truth for all caregivers, I think. And what I, the second thing that I realized um, after my husband died was that through my experience of caring for him and recovering from that, that I had learned lessons along the way that could help other people. And that led me to doing the work I'm doing now. Now, I, I want you to tell us about the work you're doing now. That is the work in compassion, fatigue, and chronic sorrow. What do you do? Well, I think the uh, first thing to say about my work in compassion fatigue is that I absolutely love it. Uh, this teaching time is the best professional time that I have had in my life. And I have the opportunity to, through my psychoeducational practice, which is called Caregiver Wellness Workshops, I'm able to travel around the country teaching one-day and one-day workshops and two-day retreats on various aspects of compassion fatigue, uh, learning to recognize it, recovering from it, and building resilience. And these interactive practical workshops seem to make an immediate difference in people's lives. So it makes the work immensely rewarding. And because the workshops can be adapted for groups of family caregivers or helping professionals or volunteers, then I have the opportunity to reach a really wide group of helpers, which is the goal of the work that I'm doing. Jan, I want to just ask you a practical question. Mm. You, you talk about um, crossing, crisscrossing the country, delivering your workshops and the like. Um, do you go, many of our listeners are in the United States. Um, do you also, or would you also consider uh, delivering your services in the United States? There, is a, there are some complicating factors about going down to the United States and there are issues around um, customs and immigration. If those issues were ironed out, then absolutely, I'd be happy to travel anywhere to share this information with people. So without wanting to cause uh, an international uh, controversy. I'd like to say I hope that uh, there can be some change to help you because from what you've said already, and we're going to be learning more about what you you do and the benefits you bring, uh, it seems to me that what you're doing and wanting to do, what you so enjoy doing is powerfully important to family caregivers 
across North America and in other countries as well who are feeling the stress and strain of family caregiving at a time when healthcare systems are all themselves under stress and therefore are relying more and more on family caregivers. Now, can I just ask you very quickly, is that your impression too, that there's more and more reliance on family caregivers? Yes, I think definitely that's the truth. In fact, I have an elderly friend who is in her mid-80s and who spent the last two years providing uh, home dialysis for her husband, who was 90 years old. And it's something that we would never have thought of in the years when I was involved in nursing care. And it was a tremendous stress for her, and I don't think she's an unusual case. I think that not only are we asking people to give basic care at home, we're asking them to give medical care, and often they are untrained and very frightened at the prospect of doing that. And it robs them of often the last weeks and months of of time that they have left with their loved one when they really should be in relationship with them as a loved one, not as a healthcare practitioner. So it's really not surprising that compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow are profoundly important issues for many family caregivers. <laughs> now on that point, Jan, um, this is the time when we have to take a break to pay our rent. Right. So I'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Jan Spillman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Radio, Powell River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Please stay with us. We will be back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Spillman. Our topic is compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. Now let's discuss compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. Jan, what are compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow? Well, our primary focus will be compassion fatigue and we'll look at chronic sorrow as a contributing factor to that. Compassion fatigue is basically a trauma issue, and a trauma is just an emotional wound that's caused by a traumatic event. So very simply, compassion fatigue is just what it says it is, fatigued compassion. 
our capacity for or interest in being empathic or compassionate with other people's suffering gets worn out by our interactions with people who are suffering or traumatized. As a result, we tend to disengage emotionally from those very people that we're trying to help, and that's the way we try to protect ourselves. We get indirectly wounded when we have compassion fatigue by hearing about people who have been wounded themselves. This happens as we hear trauma stories from others, particularly our own care recipients. We may hear stories from other caregivers in support groups or in hospital waiting rooms. We may hear them from well-meaning helping professionals who are trying to put our experiences into perspective for us. Or we may hear these stories from completely unrelated sources like books or TVs or um, movie characters whose experiences parallel our own. So that's what compassion fatigue is. It's also important to know what it isn't. It's not an illness, particularly a mental illness. Rather, it's a normal response to an abnormal amount of stress. It's also not a form of burnout, but it almost always coexists with burnout. So if we have compassion fatigue, we probably have burnout too. And it's not a sign that we are hard or uncaring people. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's the most caring among us whose compassion and empathy gets worn out over time. If you are interested in a more formal definition of compassion fatigue, we say that compassion fatigue is symptoms of post-traumatic stress culminating in a loss of capacity for or interest in being empathic with other people's suffering and leading to emotional disengagement from the people we're trying to help. It occurs when the primary traumatic stress that we've experienced directly in our own lives over our entire lifetime converges with the secondary traumatic stress we experience indirectly through hearing other people's trauma stories. And this occurs within the presence of burnout, which is the chronic stress of perceived work demands, being greater than perceived resources, and chronic sorrow, which is a very particular, distinct kind of grief response that occurs in people with permanent impairments and those who love them. And it lasts from the time of diagnosis until the time of the death of the person with the chronic condition. And that sorrow is rooted in an aching discrepancy between our perception of the reality of life as it is and our fantasy of life as it should or could have been if the illness hadn't been there. And that's the makeup of compassion fatigue. Right. Now, as you suggest, we're going to now concentrate on compassion fatigue. So my next question to you is... Please tell us about the challenges that compassion fatigue creates for family caregivers. Well, those challenges arise 
from the experiences of compassion fatigue itself. And those experiences include early on the loss of our sense of humor, um, emotional and spiritual exhaustion, irritability, anger, resentment. For some people, survivor guilt. Some people have to deal with intrusive images in their mind of their care recipient's traumatic events. There may be irrational fears or hypervigilance, which is the fancy way of saying we're constantly looking around to see where the next dangerous situation is going to come from. We may find that we're becoming hypersensitive or actually insensitive to other people's pain. We may feel vulnerable. We may have trouble concentrating or remembering things. We may get kind of cynical and lose our hope. We develop intimacy issues, sexual issues. We may develop a particular symptom that's called the silencing response, which means that we will find any way possible to keep people from telling us about their pain because it's just too hard to listen anymore. We may develop a real lack of self-care, and we may start to self-medicate or to numb our pain using alcohol, prescription drugs, illicit drugs, or other compulsive behaviors like spending or overeating or exercising or internet porn. And all of these kinds of experiences will lead us to challenges including maintaining our health, staying emotionally connected to the care recipient and to our support systems, and being able to refuel sufficiently to continue providing quality caregiving. Jan, those are powerful challenges. So let's now talk about the consequences for family caregivers if they don't get effective help with their challenges. If caregivers don't have the opportunity to first recognize and then get help for their compassion fatigue experiences and to have that happen early on in the process, then the process itself and the warning signs will only worsen. And that will potentially lead to things like a breakdown in the caregiver's health, uh, diminished quality of caregiving with negative consequences for the care recipient, perhaps actually even having to stop caregiving. It may lead to a loss of important relationships, perhaps with the care recipient, him or herself, with family and friends, and importantly, with health care providers on whom we're dependent. It may lead to a permanent change in our worldview, meaning that people who have historically seen the world as a friendly place may start to see the world as a dangerous one or one that is unworthy of their trust. And something that I noticed after my own husband's death was that it may prolong your healing time after the care recipient's death. I found that there was a period of time before I could even begin to grieve, a period when I had to heal physically and emotionally from some of the trauma before I even had the energy to do the normal grieving that comes after the loss of a loved one. 
Among the consequences, you, you mentioned those for the persons, the family members who are receiving care from family caregivers. Um, I want also to ask you about the consequences for the family as a whole. Um, please, could you identify some of those consequences that affect a family that's living together or perhaps even an extended family that's spread out all over the place? What are those consequences? Well, I think, you know, that uh, the consequences are the same for all the members of the family in the sense that all who are involved in care are potentially vulnerable to developing their own compassion fatigue and their own chronic sorrows. So each of the things that I have mentioned potentially can happen for every member of the family. So all are vulnerable, all are affected, all are in need of support and help both within the family and from the community around them. In one way of looking at this, um, stress within a group such as a family, an extending, extended family, amplifies itself. That is to say, things are difficult to start out with, but the consequences of this diffused stress um, accentuate the pressures on everybody to the point that the situation actually deteriorates as a result of the stress. Uh, is it, do you agree with that, or am I overstating it? No, I think that you're correct. And I, and I think what we could probably say is that however the family has dealt with stress as a system in the past will be the way that they will deal with the stress of the illness. Only they will do everything that they normally do to protect themselves with the volume turned up. So if you have one person who used to cope by withdrawing, they'll withdraw even farther. If you have somebody else who copes by being angry, they will be even angrier than they normally are. So we do what we usually do within the system, but at a higher level. So if it's a family culture where we haven't got along too well in the past because of disagreements and the rest of it, am I right in interpreting you as saying that those tendencies are likely to get worse with, with the um, compassion fatigue? Is that right? Yes, I think that's true. Without intervention, that will probably happen. Yeah. Now, that's a very... Uh, how can I put it? That's a very unproductive kind of environment, isn't it, um, for a family to be in. And yet, it, without, and we're going to be talking about this in the next segment, without help, um, it would seem that the consequences can only grow. Now, I, I know that's a leading question, but is that a fair comment? Or again, am I overstating uh, the, the the concerns about those consequences. Yes, I think that's true. And one of the things that we know about compassion fatigue is that once it's allowed to move beyond a certain point, unless there is specific focused intervention, the I, I don't like to use the word symptoms because it makes it sound as though we're, we're dealing with an illness, but for want of a better word, the symptoms will get 
progressively worse, and people will become more and more traumatized over time and less able to function. Right. Now, at that point, um, we have to take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Jan Spillman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Please stay tuned. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Spillman. Our topic is compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. So now let's talk about help for compassion fatigue. Um, help for family caregivers. Please explain, Jan, the types of help needed by family caregivers with compassion fatigue. Well, you know, I think it's something that it's important for us to look at at a systemic level, at a family level, and at an individual level. And I think systemically, at least here in Canada, we really need a country that's committed to putting the brakes on any movement toward private health care. We need a government that's committed to adequately funding our public health care system. We need a health care system that's committed to its own compassion fatigue education and healing, therefore a system that's able to do its own work well. I think at a family level, we need to be able to provide access to therapy for those families who are having difficulty communicating with each other about the stress that they're undergoing. And at an individual level, at an individual caregiver level anyway, I think that education and individual recognition of the earliest signs of compassion fatigue experience is very important. Caregivers need to have access 
to affordable trauma healing and resilience building through knowledgeable counseling and coaching. And they also need to have access to flexible and appropriate home care and respite so that there is some opportunity for them to refuel and rejuvenate as time goes on. I think that um, the kind of, of counseling and coaching that is most helpful for our family caregivers is one that is a kind of companioning model, a flexible model of counseling that draws from many different theoretical orientations and focuses on things like specific healing of specific traumas, grief support, teaching people ways to stay in a relaxed space in their body in the midst of traumatic situations, um, helping people to balance the negative feelings and experiences that are a day-to-day occurrence with positive feelings and experiences. One of the ways that I did that as a family caregiver, and I did it because my husband gave me a Christmas present of a gratitude journal a couple of years before he died, and he gave himself one as well. And we decided that we would write down five things at the end of every day for which we were grateful. And we did that almost to the last six months before he died. And we, when he could no longer use a pen and pencil, we used to lie in bed at night and hold hands and tell each other those five things. And while it never took away any of the pain that we were experiencing, it helped to, to balance that pain in a way that made a significant difference. And when we came to the days after he had died, I was surprised to find that when I looked back over those journals, there was kind of a, a double giftedness that came with the gratitude journaling And that was that here I had in my hand a book that had a legacy of all of the tiny intimate details of the last few years that we had together, things I would never have written down or remembered otherwise, but that were present as a gift to me after his death. So that's another way that um, we can help family caregivers. I think that uh, another important... um, Another important way of, of helping is to help caregivers develop a personal wellness plan, a really detailed one that specifically says what they're going to do to take care of themselves on a given day and how they're going to go about doing that. And then making sure that they have an opportunity to update it on a regular basis so that it's in tune with whatever is going on in their lives and the lives of the care recipient. So those are the ideas that I can come up with in terms of help for family caregivers. Now please tell us about your caregiver wellness workshops. Mm. Well, there are several caregiver wellness workshops that I facilitate. The core one is called Caring on Empty, Compassion, Fatigue, Transformation, and Resilience. And then there's a follow-up one called Weller Than Well, Recovery and Resilience. A 
third one is an adventure in self-discovery, which is about compassion fatigue and the Enneagram. And a fourth one called Chronic Sorrow in Family Caregivers. Each of these workshops is very practically based, interactive, and positive, uh, with a strong emphasis on participant choice and empowerment and emotional safety. I think it's really important for caregivers who are stressed in every aspect of their lives and often feeling helpless to have the opportunity to come to a workshop where they can pass on an activity and not participate, or where they can just sit and allow the information to flow around and through them and then go on home taking with them the things that mattered and leaving the rest behind. Jan, I want you please now to give us examples of the way in which people are helped by your workshops and perhaps feeding back into the things that you talked about when you were answering my question about the types of help that family caregivers need with compassion fatigue. So examples of the way in which your workshops help people. Well, the workshops are definitely educational workshops and not group therapy, so it's about information giving and sharing. And I think the first way that people are helped is by gaining information that normalizes their experience, that lets them know that they're not sick or stuck or crazy as they might have feared that they were, and that they're just having a normal response to an abnormal amount of stress. Secondly, I think that uh, by learning practical and realistic ways to cope with their stress, um, they're able to transform their experience. They're able to learn practical things like how to calm their body down when they find themselves moving into a fight, flight, or freeze response, how to manage their feelings how to express their needs and ask for help when it's appropriate, how to build their stress resilience, how to improve their self-care. Thirdly, I would say by offering them access to resources, resources that they may not have the time or the energy to search out for themselves. People go home with a long list of books to read and websites to look at, particularly the Caregiver Wellness website, um, but others as well, including the Compassion Fatigue Awareness Project and the Compassion Fatigue Solutions website. And lastly, I think they're helped by sharing experiences with other caregivers and learning from people who are a few steps ahead of them in the process. I think that helps on a practical level to learn how to do things, what was successful for other people, what wasn't. But it also helps them to learn that they're not alone. We get so isolated in our caregiving journeys that sometimes we feel like we're the only people who are living this crazy life. And it really helps to learn that we're not alone. Other people have walked it, and most importantly, that other people have survived and thrived. Jan, you mentioned um, what I'm going to call admitting 
the stress to ourselves that within a family uh, sharing with other members of the family really how we feel about things um, and I got from that your perhaps rightly or wrongly your view that people are inclined to hold back on what they really feel please could you uh, answer that question what about people holding back and is that something that your workshops helps combat yes indeed it's a topic that comes up pretty regularly I think that with the best will in the world and the best intentions what we tend to do in a time of crisis is to protect each other within the family system to try not to add any more hurt or any more stress to the people that we love. And as a result of that, we tend to hold back and we don't talk about the things that matter the most. Now, unfortunately, what happens is that rather than protecting the system, protecting our closeness to each other, what it actually does is cause a distance between people and the family and keeps us from saying the things that we really need to say so that our stress can be reduced and we can have close, comfortable times with each other before our loved one dies. So that's really very, very important, isn't it? That is to say, being open about what we're going through with each other in the family isn't adding to the problem it's actually a way of making it more bearable but it, is this right it does require a certain amount of personal courage to be able to take this on because we fear about burdening our family i mean just very briefly am i right or wrong about that do you think i think that you are right in many cases i think that all families are different so it's going to be an individual answer for each family and people don't change the way that they communicate in a family system overnight but i think by and large we can say that we become closer the more transparent that we can be with each other very good clear rule that now once again it's time to take the break this is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Jan Spillman. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM, Powell River Community Radio, BC, Canada. Stay tuned, we're coming back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. It's sex education like you've never heard before. Want to improve your love life? You know, that love life. Join sexual wellness expert and certified erotic educator Jaya for Sex with Jaya. She'll bring you cutting-edge techniques to expand your erotic repertoire. Jaya will offer advice and speak with guests who will shed light on everything to do with sex. You can even listen together with that special someone. Sex with Jaya is broadcast live every Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Jan Spillman. Our topic is compassion fatigue and chronic sorrow. So, Jan, what I want to talk, you to talk about now is more help for family caregivers affected by compassion fatigue and the things that go with it. So, in what ways would you like to see more help provided by the healthcare and social services systems to family caregivers confronted by the challenges of compassion fatigue? Well, I think we're talking about what may be uh, a lengthy process because I think that, first of all, we need to educate healthcare and social service systems regarding the issue of compassion fatigue. It's, it's not an issue that we've known about for a long time, and there's not a lot of research yet regarding compassion fatigue in family caregivers. So it's going to take a little while, I think. We have to allow the people in those systems to learn about it and then to deal with and heal their own compassion fatigue because I, I think there is much of it in the healthcare system itself. So those things need to happen. But after that, I would be hopeful that the systems involved would be able to take that information and apply what they've learned and to offer it on an ongoing individual basis as a, um, a, just a part of the way that they communicate with the family caregivers they work with. In a more formal sense, they would then be able to make assessments to how family caregivers were doing with their compassion fatigue and to make appropriate referrals. And here we would have to have, again, some affordable means of getting therapy for these folks, but we would want to have appropriate referrals for therapy to help people deal with the individual traumas and losses that have occurred as they've been doing their caregiving. Just an extension, please, of the question that you've just answered. You, you talk about um, needs within the healthcare system. Am I right in interpreting you to be saying that there is compassion fatigue among healthcare professionals working in the healthcare system and maybe social social services personnel as well. Is that right? Yes, very definitely. I see many people coming to my workshops from both those areas. And I really think, looking back on my own experience, that a lot of the times when there was conflict or friction between healthcare and social service professionals and family caregivers were the times when both of those people had not much skin left on their nerve endings. And as they brushed up against each other in conversations regarding patient care, there would be static, there would be sparks. And it was because both people were suffering. 
both people had come to the point where their compassion was diminished and their desire and ability to empathize had diminished. And what would happen as a result of that was that both sides would go away from the interaction more stressed, and even more importantly, the person who was the patient would get a diminished quality of care. Right. So what's your message for healthcare and social services professionals regarding more help for family caregivers? Well, probably a reiteration of what I said earlier. First of all, that we need to recognize the issue and get some funding for therapy and support for family caregivers, that we need to have the healthcare professionals address their own compassion fatigue and to... Um, well, just to be able to be more open with the the family caregivers that they meet with in their day-to-day work. And we need to be able to provide access to appropriate respite for family caregivers to help reduce some of their stress. Because very often, our, often in our system, what we find is that... Um, Increasingly, we're having respite help available, but it's not necessarily at the level of professional help that that particular patient and family caregiver need. And so the the family caregiver isn't able to go away, relax, rejuvenate, and come back because they're worried that the person who is caring for their loved one isn't um, trained to a level that would allow them to give good quality care. John, what's your message of hope for family caregivers caring for their family members? Well, you know, I think information is power. And I think that the more we learn, the more we're able to change. And there's a a wonderful... Canadian children's author named uh, Jean Little, who wrote a haiku in a book that she wrote for adolescents. The book was called Hey World, Here I Am, and the haiku was called Surprise. And I think it speaks to the power of learning more about things like compassion fatigue, like chronic sorrow. The poem goes like this. I feel like the ground in winter, hard, cold, dark, dead, unyielding. Then hope pokes through me like a crocus. And I think that's what information does. It pokes hope through us like a crocus and allows us to improve the quality of our own lives and the lives of the people we care for. John, that's a very, very powerful message. And it raises the question then of where family caregivers go for their information. Um, That's a matter of, I think, real challenge because so much of the information out there is either written for doctors and nurses or for researchers or... And the alternative is what's on the internet 
some of which is excellent and some of which is exactly the opposite. So the question then is, this is a supplementary question, if given, and I agree with you wholeheartedly because I've spent a lot of my life in information services, uh, that information is power, where do you recommend that family caregivers get that power from? Well, I would invite them to visit uh, the weekly blog that I write for caregivers of all sorts, so helping professionals, family caregivers, and volunteers. There is usually something new, and I'm always careful to research the information that I put on that website. Um, I would suggest perhaps talking to the healthcare professionals, perhaps the home care nurses in people's individual localities to ask about websites and information sources in people's individual areas that are credible. And I would also suggest that family caregivers listen to their own bodies because if something doesn't sound right, it probably isn't right. Now, I'm going to just wind up because, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of um, this particular episode of Family Caregivers Unite. But what I would just like to do is to summarize back to you, Jan, some of the uh, messages that I've got in the hope of amplifying what you've been saying. And one of the most profound messages that I've got is that there is hope for family caregivers and as we've just been discussing that lies in getting information which is trustworthy which is understandable and which is actually useful and I'd add, and this is something new for me to say it's insightful in the way that you've just described so that's that's kind of one amplification of your message another is that this really matters. That is, um, compassion fatigue is real. You mentioned that it's new in the sense that it's not been really recognized for what it is until quite recently. Uh, but it matters profoundly for the reasons we discussed in previous segments, which is that more and more family caregivers are an essential component of the healthcare systems, not just in Canada, not just in North America, but across the world, because after all, family caregiving predates healthcare systems by millenniums upon millenniums. So therefore, family caregiving is of profound importance in our changing society. So, Understanding that they may suffer compassion fatigue becomes important for everyone, for healthcare professionals, social professions, uh, and for politicians, as, we, as you mentioned. That understanding that help in the directions you've been talking about uh, actually matter, not just to family caregivers, important though those are, but to the entire system. And I guess the third message is that um, family caregivers, and this is perhaps more my line too, need a voice in that their needs need to be better understood through the work of people like you and others talking about them, their work, um, talking about the results of the work, talking about the benefits. And here I'm going to put in a little 
promotion and I hope you'll forgive me for Family Caregivers Unite because I'm going to, after the show is over, Jan, I'm going to lobby you to put the link to this particular episode on your blog, your website, because I think what you've been saying on this particular episode uh, is profoundly important for getting the messages out, for giving hope to family caregivers, and also giving them that sense that their messages, their needs, and in the end, the kind of help they need are now becoming things that people talk about openly and using internet radio such as ours um, to achieve. So that's the end of my promo. Forgive me for it, but I hope it's it's also helpful to <laughs> what you've been <laughs> saying and doing. Now, okay. Now, Jan, I want to say thank you very much for sharing with us your experience, your insights, and your advice. And on behalf of all of us, I wish you all success in your work, and I hope you manage to cross the boundary into the U.S. and do your good work there, too. So I want to thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about mental illness, treatment, recovery, and stigma. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.